Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. Hello, welcome to BatChat. We're the Bat Conservation Trust, the leading charity in the United Kingdom solely devoted to the conservation of bats and the landscapes on which they rely. This podcast is for anyone who loves bats. We're taking you on location across the UK to bring you the work being done in the world of bat conservation straight to your headphones. I'm Steve Rowe. Professionally, I'm an ecologist, and in my spare time, I'm a trustee of the Bat Conservation Trust. You can join the conversation online using the hashtag BatChat. That's all one word. We're currently between series here on BatChat, but I had to tell you about a really special exhibition taking place over the next few months. So we're bringing you this special bonus episode. Last week, I was invited to a place I've never been before, the British Library. Located opposite St Pancras International Train Station in central London, the British Library is largely known for holding the world's most important documents, such as the Magna Carta and Leonardo da Vinci's notebook. But did you know it also holds the Wildlife Sound Archive? Established in 1969 as the British Library of Wildlife Sounds, the collection now holds over a quarter of a million scientifically organised and documented field recordings, covering all classes of animal. Now, this summer, in a major new exhibition titled Animals, Art, Science and Sound, you can see how documenting the animal world has resulted in some of humankind's most awe-inspiring art, science and sound recordings. An entire section of this collection is dedicated to darkness, and I got to have a preview of what's on show a couple of days before the exhibition opened. In this interview with Cheryl Tipp, curator of wildlife and environmental sounds, I discover what can be heard in the exhibit, as well as what bat recordings lie in the archive. We get to hear horseshoe bats made on one of the first commercially available bat detectors, the Holgate Mark VI, and you can see this detector within the exhibition, along with photographs of the waveforms it could make from recordings. It sits alongside other important bat works, and in this episode, Cheryl also explains how you can submit your bat recordings to the British Library for adding to the archives. So, I am, as you can hear in the background, in a new exhibition at the British Library in central London, just over the road from St Pancras Station, and I'm here with Cheryl Tipp, who's the curator of... Wildlife and Environmental Sounds. ...at the British Library. So... Uh, Cheryl, do you want to say a bit about your role here and how long you've been here at the at the library? So I'm curator of wildlife and environmental sounds, working in the sound archive. I've been here for 18 years now. Um, my background is in zoology, but also in public libraries. And so it was a perfect combination when I was able to come and work here at the BL. Lovely. And... I mean, I've always thought the British Library just holds manuscripts and documents and the important books and things. I hadn't realised it's got a sound library. How vast is the collection and what sort of things does it hold? 
Well, the sound archive holds over 7 million recordings and it covers all genres of recorded sound. So I look after the wildlife and environmental, but of course we've got pop music curators, drama and literature, world and traditional, accents and dialects, radio, oral history. We've got so much material. And in my collection, I've got about 300,000 recordings, catalogued recordings, many more to do. <laughs> Um, in my collection covering all the animal groups and from all around the world Um, and that's one of the points of the exhibition was to try and promote the sound collections here as much as the other collections because many people don't know we have a sound archive and it's this massive resource that's just waiting to be explored and used and yeah it's a great resource and why a career in sound you know what is it about sound that's made you want to to do this well my background is not in sound I started with just population biology and then by chance I managed to get a job in the sound archive and it completely changed um, my kind of interest my focus you know so I I really I kind of relearned the natural world through sound and so when I first started it was great learning all these new sounds and exploring them and hearing weird sounds and you know really important recordings and so now I, I listen in a completely different way as well when I'm out and about, you know. So it's kind of going back to old places that I used to know visually, but then now exploring them sonically. So it's, completely, it's actually completely changed my life working here <laughs> and how I sort of engage with the natural world. So, I mean, how does sound tell us more about the natural world? I'm thinking about uh, the Larks Ascending project. So both Cheryl and I are members of the Wildlife Sound Recording Society and their latest newsletter is requesting that people record the uh and amongst one of the weekends has just gone but there's another two weekends isn't there, there are, yeah. the first time that people hear skylarks yes. how does sound link us with the natural world we're such a powerful thing sound you know we're, we're so used to sort of reading about animals and, and looking at animals but what you can learn from sound, what you can get from sound you know from a kind of like well-being point of view just enjoying being able to enjoy the sound of the natural world but also from a scientific point of view from from sort of population studies and surveys and using sound to identify new species where before they species were kind of defined just by looking you know at the morphology and and using sound that kind of is another way of looking at animals and it's it's you know identified new species found new populations it's inspired people it, create, it stirs a lot of emotion in people as well, sometimes more so, I would say, than just looking at a static object or reading a description because there's another living, uh, living being, you know, that, that is living at the same time as you. And it's, it's something very special about sound. I know I'm biased, but, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a very special medium. Well, and there's a reason that people listen to this podcast because, you know, we take people out on location and we get those sounds of people doing stuff. Exactly. This is what we found during lockdown as well, is that the, the wildlife sound section was hugely popular because people couldn't travel anymore, you know, and maybe they wanted to listen to the sounds of rainforests in South America and you could through our collections, you know, so it's, it really helps transport you to somewhere different or somewhere new. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> so we can hear lots of sounds in the background and we've got you on Bat Chat to talk about your exciting new exhibition which is called Animals, Art, Science and Sound. So do you want to tell us what it's all about? Yep, so our exhibition is looking at how animals have been documented over the past 2,000 years. Well, in terms of our collection items anyway, that's our focus and how they've been documented through text, through visual material like paintings and through sound recordings as well. And what we've done is we've brought together a range of material from across the library. It's very library focused, you know, yeah. we wanted to really showcase our record, our material that we have here Um, and the material is divided into four different zones so darkness water land and air Um, 
by doing that, it's allowed us to bring together chronologically and geographically diverse material to tell little stories that run through the exhibition. So standing in our, our bat cave here, and we have a section that looks at bats, we have a section that looks at strange animals that live in darkness, we have a section that looks at the deep sea, um, and that, those kind of ways of grouping material together runs through the exhibition. So just hope people find a lot of inspiration and enjoyment through looking through this material. So Cheryl says we're stood in the Batcave, so we're, it's, the, it's actually the first bit on the exhibition uh, that people come to, um, if you do come down and see it, and we're stood in a darkened area of the exhibition with lots of uh, glass cabinets, and there's loads of different books and documents with illustrations of bats through different times. There's an old bat detector here, which we'll come on to in a minute, and there's uh, illustrations and paintings of bats on the wall. You've picked these particular ones for the exhibition. What other sounds for bats do you have in the library? So this section on bats is looking at how our knowledge of bats has changed over time. So from sort of classical times and early scholars thinking that they were a weird kind of bird, <laughs> moving through to being able to identify them as a distinct group of mammals in their own right. So the bat detector we're looking at here is a Holgate Mark VI, and it belonged to the amateur naturalist John Hooper, who your listeners might know. We have his collection here in the library, and this bat detector was used by Hooper to record some of the earliest recordings of British bats. Um, and next to it, we have a photo album of his, which when I saw it, when it's closed, it just says photos. And I yeah. thought, oh, that'd be nice. You know, it's got some of his family, maybe him. And then flicking through it, it's all of these photographs of waveforms that he took um, by photographing his oscilloscope. Mm. And he has all the different species that he's recorded, so greater horseshoe bats. another page for pipistrels and it's just a really lovely thing to accompany the sound recordings and the equipment that we have um, here in the library and it's it's so interesting to see you know we have this early bat detector and it's so it's supposed to be portable but you know it's <laughs> it's, it's so heavy and quite cumbersome and yet you know he managed to sort of put it on the back of his bicycle and travel around London and around into Devon and Dorset and places like that to make these recordings and it's in that great tradition of the amateur naturalist you know because it wasn't he wasn't a scientist as his paid job um, but just doing this in his spare time and what he was able to contribute in terms of you know testing out equipment working on the specifications building up a collection um is a, is a great thing so this is part of the sound archive and sits alongside our other recordings of bats that we have and, and other animals as well but it's a very it's a very special one for us i think because it's so multi-dimensional and cheryl says it would he'd take it on his bike i mean it would fill a, a, a basket on the front of a bicycle it's that big mm. and these oscillograms are very different to what we're used to now they look very different don't they they do yeah so we used to sort of you know spectrograms and mm. colored spectrograms and it's quite easy to follow the shapes whereas these are these are very different and, and to be honest I still don't fully understand them <laughs> I get the point <laughs> but um, yeah they are very different to what we would normally normally do and it's quite nice to have it sitting next to this this um, probably quite familiar plate to people mm, from yeah. Ernst Haeckel from the 1914 this particular edition showing different species um, 
of echolocating bat. So you see the different nose leaves, you know, and the facial structures. And so I love this one because you've got so many different species and sometimes you have a side view as well as a full-on front view um, and then having it next to a great horseshoe bat painting by Edward Lear. It's kind of cheekily putting his wing out, saying hello. Um, <laughs> So it's yeah, it's really it's been really fun putting this material together. I could have done a whole section mm. on bats, you know. I had to rein it in a little bit. Um, and how many recordings of bats do you think you have in the collection? Do you have any sort of idea? Yeah, I do. Um, we have about well, we have over a thousand recordings of bats um, that are catalogued. Yeah. Um, we have many more that are waiting to be processed. The earliest recordings are from 1963 that we have, okay. made in Trinidad by David Pye. Yeah. Um, and then. The earliest British ones we have are from 1964 onwards, made by John Hooper. Um, and then we have recordings running through until last year. And I'll oh, be really? getting some this year as well. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's constantly growing, um, constantly busy catalogue. And it's quite nice to see the different um, recorders that are being used as well, you know, from the early heterodyne through to the more um, modern recorders that we have. And so listening to a, a noctual, say, recording on a heterodyne, and then listening to it recording on other, mach- on other devices and seeing the difference, you know, so how, how it's all kind of just different interpretations of sounds that we can hear it. Um, it's very interesting to do the comparison and in terms of the exhibition i mean we've talked about bats here but like you said further around there's uh, there's uh, water land and air and there's stuff the land section is quite large and as we were going around cheryl just casually dropping in that there's framed images of letters from darwin to alfred russell wallace and there was a leonardo yeah, uh, yeah. image oh, on there so and you're just dropping those in i mean <laughs> how difficult has it been to pull together those uh sort of manuscripts and link them together with the sound elements of this exhibition it's been difficult in terms of making the final list you know there's endless ways because the sound archives are big because our collections are so vast you can tell so many different stories by combining you know the text and the visuals and the sounds so the hardest bit has been trying to decide what ones to focus in on you know so we could do 10 different exhibitions on this subject each one would be slightly different um, but that's what's been fun about it as well. It's kind of, kind of mini curated sections as we go through, you know, and putting them together so that we can tell the story we want to tell, like for bats or for strange animals that live in darkness or for um, sort of trying to save humpback whales from extinction, you know, these different stories we're trying to tell. So it's been a lot of fun, for sure. One of my favourite parts was as we were going around, there were large, beautiful colour photographs of, of beetles and then... What I hadn't seen before was those... Uh, are they photostacked images, those, to get the 3D depth, I guess? I believe so, yeah. They're sort of, like, stitched all together. Yeah. And then underneath each of those was the actual specimen that they're photographed. It was really nice to be able to link those two bits together. Um, what's your favourite sound in the exhibit? It's so difficult, because, <laughs> like, like, walking around today, the first time I've heard there's a red fox playing in the space, and I love the sound of red foxes, so that's kind of a favourite of mine. But, I mean, there's so, there's so many. It's so hard to choose. Um, we've got sort of gorilla chest beats, you know, we've got beautiful bird songs. We've got, oh, I'll tell you what is my favourite, actually, at the moment. It's the section to do with underwater sounds. Yeah, yeah. And so we've got um, bearded seals, those really strange um, sounds that they make as they descend. We've got a walrus in there that's um, making drumming sounds with an air sac in its throat. We've got a, the mating calls of the haddock, bottlenose dolphins. I mean, and humpback whale song as well is so you know beautiful. Um, 
So, yeah, I mean, I think my favourite changes every day, to be honest. <laughs> and where's the idea for this exhibition come from? You know, like you said, it's taken ages to put it together. Um, you know, where's, where's the idea and the need for it, I guess, come from? Well, it's the library's 50th anniversary this year, and we were thinking about this for a few years. We wanted to showcase our natural history material, but also look at our scientific material as well. And we thought one really nice way to engage with the scientific material is to use natural history and animals, you know, because everyone loves one group of animals or another and we just felt this was the right time to try and do something a little bit different um, to bring together such a wide variety of material you know so and you this would hopefully appeal to anybody as well any age and so it's not you don't have to have a particular background or you don't have to have a particular knowledge you can just come in here and and just you know sort of bask in all the (laughs) wonderful things that are on display um yeah, I mean, in terms of different ages, there's uh, a section around the corner where you've got different, the first, I guess, um, records on uh, vinyl. And one of those is a, is a kid's one. There were vinyls made for kids. Yeah, that's right. This one dates from 1919. It was produced by the Talking Book Corporation in the US, and they did a series of educational records for children, which would have a story on the back about the animal. Um, so what it is, I should explain, it's like imagine a little tea plate. Yeah. And then that tea plate, which is the record, and that is fixed to a wider cardboard picture of an animal. And you put the whole thing on the turntable. And the one we have on display is the hippopotamus. Oh, the cardboard goes on the turntable. Yeah, everything goes on, so it all goes round, uh, which is really fun. And then the... the hippopotamus one it's a little rhyme talking about a hippopotamus and in on that recording there's a sound of of a hippo supposedly but it's actually foley so it's artificially created sounds because in 1919 wildlife sound recording was still a very early medium and they didn't have loads of recordings like we do today and so they had to recreate artificially create the sound of a hippo Um, and that's they use an instrument called a lion's roar which is like a drum with a piece of cord and you pull that through to create a kind of roar they also used it on their other records so for a lion an elephant um something a tiger as well Um, but when i first heard it i thought it was a completely new recording (laughs) that i'd never heard of i was like who made this where is it i need it um but it's not actually a real animal because i thought i was going to write a paper on it but (laughs) i'm glad i didn't because i would have embarrassed myself so i went when this goes out, the exhibition will have already opened. Uh, when does it run for and how do people book? So it runs from the 21st of April to the 28th of August. Uh, you can book on our website at www.bl.uk. Just go to events and animals. Um, we're going to have a few days as well throughout the run where it's kind of a pay-as-you-go. So just to you know encourage more people to come. There's a series of events as well that's running through the exhibition, um, some of which are online. So you know anywhere in the world you can you can tune into that um lots of things lots of things going on hopefully most people come and see it in real life um yeah. but if not there's a lot of things online as well no i was really pleasantly pleasantly surprised you know walking around it's a real immersive experience it's not just the exhibits there's actually lights and sound and, and moving elements to the exhibit as well yeah that's what we've tried to do is trying to make it as immersive as possible without being too overwhelming you know so like the lighting in the cave and the dripping water and the animation on the ceiling just trying to just trying to bring it all together because a quiet space for me is is you know i, I don't enjoy a quiet space personally <laughs> which is why i thought let's fill it with some sounds <laughs> so you mentioned you've got a thousand bat recordings in the library are you looking for more recordings and if so what's the best way for people to get stuff to you and what sort of what sort of information needs to go with those 
I'm always looking for new material. You can never have too many recordings in an archive such as mine, you know, and I definitely have gaps, both of British species and of uh, species from all over the world. So I'm more than happy. If anyone has recordings of bats, please, yes, please send them through to me. That would be amazing. Um, just contact uh, wildlifesound at bl.uk. Um, that will come straight through to me. Or you can find me on Twitter as well through the usual, usual ways. And in terms of extra information... It's always great to have sort of the metadata, so the species name, where you recorded, when you recorded, what equipment you used, any sort of um, processing, um, behaviour, time of day. You know, the more information, the better, really, because if you only have the sounds, it's kind of as nice as it is. It's, it's, it has less value in terms of how it can be reused and what it can contribute to science or, you know, for any reason. So we definitely like to have as much information as possible, um, yeah, to build our catalogue records and to make it more useful for future generations. And I'm very guilty of that. I'm getting better, but I've started now getting into the habit of just saying where I am and what it is at the start or the end of the recording. Yeah. Um, you're sometimes gifted entire collections of sound and you have to make sense of it. Um, you know, I guess that meta data at the start or end is, is the number one thing to do, really. It is. So, you know, we do get a lot of new or not new but we do get um new collections coming into the library and obviously the person that made the collection knew the sort of understood the organization but then we get it cold and <laughs> we're like okay so i'll sit on the floor in my office and just try and like get out all the tapes and like try and make sense of it in terms of date or, or location and then you sort of have a look to see if there's any metadata whether it's in a folder or whether it's written on the tape box um sometimes sometimes there's none or like bare minimum yeah. So then that's when, when you catalogue it, you'd have to you'd listen to it to try and work out what you're listening to. You know, so that's why you sort of need that specialist knowledge so that you can, if it's birds, for example, you know if it's a song or a call or sometimes birds can sound like frogs, or, you yeah, know. Yeah. So you do need that background to be able to do it. That's part of the fun as well is taking this collection that might be absolute chaos and then making sense of it and digitising it and cataloguing it and then you know that people can then come and listen to it and reuse it so it's, you get a great sense of achievement th- you know, through doing that And you mentioned people reusing the sound there and that was the next question apart from you know, wonderful exhibitions like this what are the sounds in the library actually used for? In my section, the sounds are used for scientific research. So it might be taxonomic studies it might be playback in the field trying to you know, do surveys or find new populations and that's kind of the start of the section where it was very much a scientific collection back in 1969 mm. but the use has broadened out so much now so you've got um, artists use the sounds a lot musicians use the sounds a lot um, museum, museums and galleries use the sounds e- either to tell a story or just for ambience you know um, teachers, uh, video game makers, um, radio I mean it's like endless who can use it and some people just use it just for um, personal enjoyment and relaxation as well so it has so many um, avenues where the sounds can go and it's nice to see that kind of evolution of a sound recording so mm. maybe it came in as a very high science recording and then maybe um, it's been used by kids in a school project you know or more creatively so it's nice to think that when the recordings come in in one way they can then go out in another way and have a new life um, later on down the line. And has anybody done any studies on how sounds have sort of evolved from the same species? Have people found that, you know, from years and years ago, the same animals now sound different? Is that, is that something that's been found? They do look at things like that, yes. They look at what, say, for example, once, say you might have had a species 40 years ago and then 
by looking at the sound, by looking at the morphology, by looking at the DNA, they realise that it's a completely new species. So the sounds have been used to, to split species. But because I also have environmental sounds as well, it's quite interesting to see how the sounds can change over time in a particular space. So a place that could be really, really noisy, for example, you might find turtle doves in the place or nightingales in the place. And then someone will go there and record in 40 years' time, you know, and that's no longer the case, you know. So it's yeah. a good way of seeing how the soundscapes change over time, mainly because of our of, you know, human activity. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so you can see that in recordings as well, those changes over time. And accents as well, and how voices change over time. You see that a lot with cetaceans, yeah. you know, how it changes every year. So that's very interesting as well. A real poignant moment for me was when Cheryl pointed out, I can't remember the species, but there's a description of a sound of a creature that's no longer here so we'll never know what that sounds like that's right so that was a um, illustration of a carolina parakeet in a section where we're looking at voices that we can no longer hear some of which were recorded before they became extinct but this particular species the carolina parakeet was painted um in the 19th century became extinct in the 19th century, early 19th century, and recorded sound didn't become possible until 1877. Or recorded sound, being able to record and then play back, 1877. Field recording didn't really kick off until the 20th century. So by the time, you know, people could go into the field, you couldn't find that species anymore. So there are some species that we'll never know what they sounded like. You know, you might have a written description, you might have a musical uh, um, sort of translation, maybe, but it's not the same as hearing, you know, the actual living species um so so, yeah it's a great shame when you see things like that yeah i guess we sometimes forget how lucky we are to be able to record these sounds and we think oh we can hear all these bats now but that might not be the case in the future i guess exactly um just wrapping up then when people send you sound recordings or the the stuff you've got in the archives you know how are they stored how many different mediums are they on and how does that sort of cataloging work you know with i'm thinking with the books we know that as materials degrade, there are restoration techniques. How do you restore sound? Well, we have, I think, over 40 carriers within the sound archive. Um, mine's normally shellac, vinyl, open reel tape, mini disc, DAT, cassette, born digital. Um, and we've just wrapped up a five year project, a digi- digitization project. Mm-hmm. So, for my material, so much of my open reel tape has been digitised because that's now an obsolete format. And if we don't digitise, we won't be able to get the sound off and then we lose that sound. So, you know, we're the ones that sort of custodians of the sound. We need to make sure that we can preserve mm. it. So there's been a lot of digitisation work going on um, and that sort of continues in our normal work anyway. And so we'll just migrate it from the obsolete format to digital and then even the digital files will then need to be migrated yeah. to a higher you know, better version down the line so it never it never ends our work and do you try and restore the sound or do you keep the recordings as is when we do our first transfer it would be as is so waltz and all you know bangs hits voices all of these things so we always have a master if it's going to be used say for an exhibition or radio or something else we would do a cleaned up version mm-hmm. but our practice is you just do your straightforward no tidying up you keep it as is no edits nothing so you preserve the authenticity of the recording and then later on down the line you can make more cleaned up versions but yeah that's why if, if, when material comes into the archive we very much prefer it just to be raw you know no sort of like taking out chunks just just keep it raw and then later on we can restore it if necessary we do restore earlier recordings to take out clicks and things like that but that's after we've done our basic raw transfer Shall we sit? thank you very much for coming on Batchat thank you very much for coming I hope everyone comes to the exhibition and has a great time
Animals, Art, Science and Sound is open until Monday the 28th of August 2023. Tickets and all the information you need can be found on the exhibition webpages and we've put a link in the show notes along with a link to that Greater Horseshoe recording of John Hooper's made on the Holgate Mark 6 detector. There's also a link to a journal article about John Hooper's bat recording activities along with a link to Cheryl's Twitter profile where you can see more photos from the exhibition. My thanks to Cheryl and the team at the British Library for setting up that interview. It really is a worthwhile exhibition to get along to this summer. Recording for Bat Chat Series 5 is underway and will be coming later in the year, so tap that follow button in your podcast app and that way you'll get a notification of when that's available. We're looking for places and people to visit from across the UK, so if you're working on a great bat project or have a story about the bats in your area to share, please get in touch via the address in the show notes. Have a fantastic summer getting out there and enjoy seeing and hearing Bats in the Night Sky. And on that note, I'm going to leave you with one of Cheryl's own recordings, which sits in the British Library. The record's metadata tells us it was recorded on a coastal lane bordered by arable fields close to Pagham Harbour in West Sussex on the 16th of September 2008. It's of common pipistrels leaving a nearby roost, believed to be in the nearby church, heading towards the harbour to hunt. It was made on a Magenta 4 tuned to 45kHz with a Morant solid-state recorder on a cool, calm, dark evening. What did you think of this episode? If you can please leave a quick comment about the show in the ratings and review section, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other listeners to discover our podcast. 